Good morning. Welcome to Linworth Road Church. My name's David. I'm one of the worship leaders. It's good to be with you here. Let's stand and let's sing and worship the Lord together this morning. Rejoice in His heart. 
is our God The splendor of the King Clothed in majesty Let all the earth rejoice our voices and sing to the Lord together. Why don't you go ahead and have a seat. Kids, you can head back to your classrooms.
All right. Good morning, Glenworth. Awesome. My name is Doug. I'm Ministry Development Director here. Just want to welcome you this morning. I've got a few announcements for you. If this is your first time or if you're watching online, just a special welcome to you this morning. Um, in the chair in front of you, I almost said pew, in the chair in front of you is a connect card. This is a great way to ask questions, get information back about Linworth, um, ask for prayer requests. Go ahead and fill this out. There's some boxes in the lobby that you can drop those off afterwards. Or if you want to use the handy dandy Bible app, it just looks just like this. Um, you can go to our site and uh, we have an online connect card there as well. Plus there's information about the announcements that I'm about to give you. So if you need more additional information, there's some links and stuff in here that you're going to want to check out. So first off, our men's breakfast is on March 5th. Um, it's from 8.30 to 10.30. If you're a 15 year old guy or older, feel free to attend. Um, there's a registration that you can do it on the Bible app link there, or you can go to our website and register there as well. It's gonna be our first gathering for the guys for, uh, for, for a while now, so we you know, really wanna see you there. It's gonna be a home-cooked meal. Now, I'm not sure who's home, but it's gonna be a home-cooked meal <laughs> that you're gonna to wanna to enjoy. Plus, uh, the, pan the elders are gonna lead a panel discussion um, that are gonna help us in our walk as guys. So, um, if you'd like to get additional information, um, you can contact Dale Schuler or you can contact Rich Hendricks. They've got some additional information for you as well. Uh, but I really encourage you to check that out. And then next up, um, emotional, healthy spirituality. The materials are available, so if you've not picked those up yet, you're gonna want to do that soon. And you're gonna to want to have the first chapter read before the first meeting, so just remember that. And at this point, I'm gonna have Chris come up and continue us on in First Kings. Okay, good morning out there. Welcome again, those here and those watching online. How many puzzlers do we have out here? Okay, about two. All right. Oh, okay, a few more. So um, this is a picture of a puzzle that we recently put together. Well, I should say my wife did it with the help of our daughter and daughter-in-law. It features a famous square, Old Town Square in the old town of Prague. And um, if you notice those two spires there, many people think those are the ones that inspired the uh, spires at Disney, Disneyland. You know, I heard an analogy uh, one time uh, uh, about wisdom that related to puzzles. And the speaker used the metaphor of a puzzle to explain the difference between knowledge and wisdom. The individual puzzle pieces represent knowledge, but knowing how they fit together, that's wisdom. Wisdom is making knowledge applicable and making it work in real life. And if I could draw this analogy out even further, you see the gray sky up there on the very top of the picture or the puzzle? Now this is where finishing the puzzle got really tricky. With every piece looking nearly identical without the contrast of color, it was painstaking to find the right pieces. And I thought about this, isn't that how life is? The most painstaking decisions, the most difficult the decisions are the ones where 
right and wrong is not clearly distinguished. The hard decisions are when you can argue for either choice or when the outcome is just unknown. How many times in life have you simply not known what to do? I want to ask for a show of hands, right? How many times in life have you simply not known what to do? You're stuck. You're stuck in a relationship, in a career path. You don't know the next step. You don't know how to resolve a conflict, to heal a relationship, to help someone hurting, to bring about a just outcome. We need more than knowledge, more than raw data. We need to know how to apply knowledge into real life scenarios that carry risk if we get it wrong. That requires wisdom. In 1945, the Nuremberg trials took place. Louise and I have had the privilege of sitting down in that very courtroom where the case took place to try the uh, Nazi military and political leaders. You know, nothing like that had ever been done before. An international tribunal of four nations agreeing to come together to try the military leaders of another nation. Charges of aggressive war, breaking treaties and crimes against humanity. Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson was the lead U.S. prosecutor. And in preparing the case, he had serious differences with another member of his team, a lawyer, a man named General Donovan. And they could not iron out their differences, and Jackson essentially released Donovan from the case. And so he wrote a letter to Donovan explaining his decision and concluded with this. He wrote, therefore I did not respond to your request for access to, it should be, should be to see, access to see Garing. I repeat that time may prove you right and me wrong. I do not claim any great wisdom in so novel or so new and complex matter. I only have responsibility. Friends, I can't tell you how many times. When I read that, I said, oh my goodness. There are so many times as a parent, as a pastor, as a supervisor of employees, that is exactly how I have felt. Time will prove this is so new a matter. It's so complex a matter. Time will prove whether I'm right or you're right. But I've got the responsibility to make a decision. You ever felt that way about a hard decision? especially when you see it differently from others? Well, there's hope this morning from the Bible that we can grow in wisdom. The Bible says this about the person who gains wisdom, Proverbs 24, 5 and 6. The wise prevail through great power, and those who have knowledge muster their strength. Surely you need guidance to wage war, and victory is won through many wise advisors. Now this week's text speaks to the power of wisdom. We're picking up 
the story of Solomon that Nick introduced last week. And we're going to look at chapters three and four in First Kings. And we're going to discover these chapters or, or study these chapters. And we're going to discover three different things happen in these, this, this, these chapters. One, there's an ask. Okay. Two, there's an answer. And three, there is the aftermath. And then finally, we'll ask the question, well, so what? What difference does it all make? The critical part of the story is in the ask. And so I'd like to read this first section. And so let's stand as we encounter God's word. I'm going to read the first 15 verses, and this will introduce us to the ask. And again, this is page, if you have the, tech, the pew Bible there or the, the Bible in front of you, it is page 282. All right? Let's, let's encounter God's word together. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used, used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go or how out or how to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you've chosen a great people. Too many to be numbered are counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself, long life or riches are the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall rise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all of his servants. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's, let's pray. Father, here together as a community this morning, shaped and formed by your Holy Spirit, we ask you to make your word come alive to us 
in such a way that it transforms us and changes us, makes us different than when we walked in here this morning. In Christ's name, for his glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, you can take a seat. Okay, there is a lot to unpack here, as Nick pointed out last week. From the start, we do see some cracks in Solomon's character, the narrator points out, uh, like worshiping on the high places. These were once places of pagan worship, now converted to worship Yahweh. The people had been directed, however, only to offer sacrifices in Jerusalem. And choosing these alternative sites reflected what was convenient to the worshiper, and it led to them being self-centered. But the narrator does not point out all of the character issues. He assumes that you, his audience, are reading the entire Bible. And if we are, we know that God commands his people not to take foreign wives. Solomon is already married, and now he has a wife. In doing so, he's imitating the practice of ancient Near Eastern kings using marriage to form alliances, something else that God spoke against. Now, the Bible is honest about its heroes and its heroines, and Solomon, like us, is a contradiction of competing strengths and weaknesses. Yet, these two chapters taken as a whole are not intended to highlight Solomon's weaknesses. They are meant to show his strengths and to reveal under his leadership an incredibly happy and stable and peaceful season for the life of Israel. And it begins with a dream, a dramatic encounter. God says to Solomon, ask for whatever you want. Would you like to hear that? Actually, we have that promise, don't we, already? We have that promise. And, and you might ask the question, well, if God knows what Solomon needs already, why ask the question? Well, one, he wants to hear Solomon's voice. God is desires to be in a relationship with him. And you can't build a relationship without talking. And secondly, it is a test because it will reveal what Solomon truly wants. Our prayers reveal to God what is important to us. Notice in verse 6 where Solomon begins his prayer. Not with a request, but by reminding himself of who God is. And he does this by remembering God's acts in the past. He remembers how kind God is. Not a little kindness, but great kindness. And that he's faithful and that I've seen it. Confidence in the person of God, confidence in the generosity of God is what energizes Solomon's prayer. Now next, he still does not make a request, but he reviews his assignment relative to who he is. And it is a total mismatch. Solomon calls one commentator invites us to imagine the pressures on Solomon. He's young 
and inexperienced. He stood in the shadow of his father's glorious reign. That must have been intimidating. His brother had tried to angle for the throne before him and gained a lot of support. Saul, the old enemy of David, he still had loyalists hanging around. His position was tenuous and difficult and unsteady. Verse 9 there says about a great people. Literally means a heavy people. A great burden, great in number, difficult to lead. And Solomon has the insight to see, to admit his inadequacy before God, that his resources don't match the assignment. And you know what? God's heart has always been moved by those who admit their need. And that's what happens here. Solomon says, in effect, to God, I don't know how to do this. So he requests and asks for a discerning heart there in verse 6. Now, discern literally means hearing. And heart in the Hebrew was not simply emotion, but the center of one's being, the heart, how the mind, the intellect, and the emotions. He prays for a hearing heart, able to hear. God pleasure. You might remember the book Think Like a Freak. It was written by two economists, the same who wrote Freakonomics. The books uh, tried to upend conventional ways of thinking about various societal and business problems. They wrote this. It has been said that the three hardest words to say in the English language are, we heartily disagree. For most people, it is much harder to say, I don't know. Now, I so relate to this, friends, particularly when it comes to fixing things or using certain tools. Oh, yeah, of course, of course I know how to use fill-in-the-blank tool. Of course I can fix fill-in-the-blank household uh, item. You can fill in the blanks there, by the way, with the most basic tool or household fix there is, and you've got me. You just think of me. You've got me. The two authors point to this following experiment as one of the many ways that we won't admit, I don't know. Imagine you are asked to listen to a simple story and then answer a few questions about it. Here's the story. Are you ready? A little girl named Mary goes to the beach with her mother. At the beach, they swim, eat some ice cream, play in the sand, and have sandwiches for lunch. Now the questions. Let's go ahead and see them if we could, Tyler. All right, now, you can write these down or you can mentally think of them, all right? 
Don't, don't shout them out loud, okay? What was the color of the car? Don't say it. Just either write it down or think it. What was the color of the car? Did they have fish and chips for lunch? Did they listen to music in the car? Four, did they drink lemonade with lunch? Okay, you have your answers? You have your answers? What was the color of the car? Did they have fish and chips for lunch? Did they listen to music in the car? Ah, did they drink lemonade with lunch? Okay, some of you are catching on. Now, let's compare your answers to those of a bunch of kindergartners. Are you smarter than a kindergartner? Nearly all the children got the first two questions right, red and no. But the children did much worse with questions three and four. Why? Because these questions were unanswerable. There wasn't enough information in the story. And yet a whopping 76% of the children answered these questions either yes or no. Now kids who try, these are the writers, kids who try to bluff their way through a simple quiz like this are right on track for careers in business and politics. <laughs> where almost no one ever admits to not knowing anything. But it's a shame we can't humbly admit our ignorance, for until you can admit what you don't yet know, it's virtually impossible to learn what you need to. Close quote. All right, let's go to the second point. That was the ask, Solomon's ask. Now let's go to the answer. And we see immediately how God answers his prayer. So exciting. And it's such an interesting story and so epic that this story is also well known in our culture at large. It begins in chapter 3, verse 16. We're on page 283. Then two prostitutes came to the... Very interesting, isn't it, that common people, even prostitutes, could appeal directly to the king. Engaged in a work... alone there was no one else with us in the house only we two were in the house why is that important yeah it's because there are no other witnesses it is truly one word against the other and this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him and she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child I had born. This is, the li this is lifetime drama here, right? Switched at birth. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours, the living one is mine. And thus they spoke before the king. 
Now, how would you decide this? Flip a coin? DNA test? Sorry, not available. Verse 23. Then the king said, remember, this is like a guy in his early 20s. Just unbelievable. The king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king and the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman. I mean, every mom gets this, right? Every mom gets this. And by no means put him to death, says his mother. For, or, I'm sorry, give the living child to the first woman, Solomon says. And by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And look at the result. All Israel heard of the judgment the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Prayer answered. Now what do we learn about wisdom here? Again, wisdom is not only a recitation of facts. God breathed wisdom looks below the surface. God-breathed wisdom seeks creative solutions. God-breathed wisdom employs imagination. In this case, intuitively grasping the connection between the natural love of a mother with the child's ultimate well-being. Friends, this is otherworldly stuff, right? I mean, this is godly wisdom. Chapter 4 continues with demonstrating how God answered Solomon's prayer. In the first 18 verses, it shows the order that wisdom brings as Solomon creates an administration and appoints regional governors. He sets people into place to perpetuate and organize and sound government. The narrator wants you to see the connection between wisdom and leadership and its effect on people. Look at verse 20 and 21 in 1 Kings chapter 4. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt, and they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Friends, it's a simple maximum, or simple maxim. Good government makes people happy. And note the details here. From the Euphrates to the border of Egypt, and as many as the sand of the sea. What is the Holy Spirit trying to say to us? Again, if we are reading the Bible, not with a sort of grab bag, chicken soup for the soul approach, but if we are reading it as one story, then we know that the promise given to Abraham, the father of the Jews, I will multiply you, Abraham. I will give you this land, Abraham. 
We know those promises given a thousand years. That's a long time, friends. A thousand years earlier are being fulfilled. Look at verses 24 and 25. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tipsaw to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him, and Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. This almost matches the land that God had promised, almost. And notice the phrase, I love it, every man under his vine and fig tree. What does that mean? It means safety, prosperity, equality, economic and social freedom. It states in poetic form the social life that we aspire to. Now you ask a question, Hey, I've heard that phrase somewhere before, under his vine and fig tree. Didn't George Washington say that in the musical Hamilton? When explaining why he was not going to run for a third term and go back to Mount Vernon? Well, did you know that was in scripture? And did you know Washington actually did say it? Or actually he wrote it. He, in August of 1790, he had visited a Jewish congregation in Newport, Rhode Island, and they had some correspondence back and forth. And in that correspondence, he mentioned this scripture. It shows up three times, this idiom, this phrase. Each person under his own vine and fig tree. This is Israel's golden age. This is the apex of their national glory. No, not everything is perfect. We have seen cracks and we will see more. But the material promises given to Abraham reach their climax under Solomon. Borders are secure. There are no wars and there is peace. Okay, so we've done the ask. The writer wants you to see the answers. And now thirdly, look at the aftermath of this. I'm beginning in verse 29 of 1 Kings 4. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Haman and Kukal and Dard, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Some of these characters are interesting. Ethan wrote Psalm 89. Haman, this is not the first He-Man. Haman wrote Psalm 88. Haman was one of Samuel's grandsons, one of David's worship leaders. 
had 17 kids, and all of his family were musicians. My goodness, he has his own marching band to rival OSU's. And he had a reputation of being wise. I'd like to meet his wife. She must have been special. What is the point of all this? God's wisdom is superior. It's greater than the wisdom of the world, of Egypt, a world power known for its wise men. And the wisdom of God, now get this, this is really, really amazing. The wisdom of God is not confined just to one dimensional propositional truths. It breaks out in song. It is not confined only to the spiritual world, but breaks into the natural and physical world. Solomon possesses an insatiable curiosity to learn. One commentator notes that he is interested in poetry, botany, biology, ornithology, study of birds, ichthyology, yes, that's right, particularly bony fish, astronomy, arithmetic, and medicine. Dale Ralph Davis says, how liberating wisdom can be, it ranges over the whole domain of God's realm, joyfully investigating and describing all of God's works. This is why biblical wisdom is not in opposition to, but is at the root of all true science. Dale Ralph Davis also wrote, since God has left his, the fingerprints of his wisdom everywhere, since there is no place where God does not furnish us with raw materials for godly thinking, I love this phrase, Christians should be seized with a rambunctious curiosity to ponder his works both the majestic and the mundane. Curiosity is the pull to the recent ads for Viking Cruises, a mainstay of PBS masterpiece. The CEO of Viking, Torsten Hagen, comments on the virtues that he was raised with by his parents in Norway, kindness, honesty, and hard work. And to this one, he adds curiosity to explore the world. In a book by Mark Batterson, he makes these comments about da Vinci and curiosity. Leonardo da Vinci once observed that the average human looks without seeing, listens without hearing, touches without feeling, eats without tasting, inhales without the awareness of odor or fragrance, and talks without thinking. But not da Vinci, the quintessential Renaissance man called the five senses, the ministers of the soul. And perhaps no one in history stored them better than he did. Famous for his paintings, The Last Supper and the Mona Lisa, da Vinci trained himself in curiosity. He never went anywhere without his notebooks, making observations, writing down ideas, 7,000 7,000 pages of his journals have been preserved. Now, please take a close look at this. What is the aftermath? We have the ask, we have the answer, and now the aftermath. What is the aftermath of such wisdom? Did you catch it? 
people from all over the Near Eastern world came to hear his wisdom. This is what God had always intended. Israel, his people, as a witness to the nations. Israel bringing glory to God. Here is the great commission from the Gospels in the Old Testament. This was the power of wisdom emerging from his man, a man who in his early 20s, while in desperate prayer, called himself a little child who knew nothing. The ask, the answer, the aftermath. Now what difference does it make? Well, let me mention a couple of things. First, we and you can certainly take from this talk a model of prayer. A.W. Tozer encourages us in this vein to be guileless as children. Tozer wrote this, now as always, now, as always, God discloses himself to babes and he hides himself in thick darkness from the wise and the prudent. We must simplify our approach to him. We must strip down to essentials and they will be found to be blessedly few. We must put away all effort to impress and come with the guileless candor of childhood. If we do this without doubt, God will quickly respond. Secondly, we can also take away the admonition to be rambunctiously curious about our world. We have to strip away the so-called divide between the sacred and the secular. God and his wisdom are to be found everywhere. Not only in the marvel of the human body, in physical creation and in the just arrangements of communities and nations. All truth is God's truth. David saw evidence of God's love everywhere. Psalm 119, part of that beautiful prayer, David said, the earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Everywhere I turn, I see evidence of your love, your governance, your ruling. Teach me. Teach me your statutes. And finally, we can also rejoice in God's faithfulness. He will fulfill the promises to Abraham. He will bless all the nations on the earth. But in my remaining minutes this morning, I just want to focus on one thing. Going back to my introduction, one so what from this passage is to help you Draw on God's wisdom when you get to that fork in the road and don't know which way to turn. The times when you're stuck. In parenting, for example, when discerning how to confront a child's weakness and you are so perplexed and your questions and your actions you go through and both sides seem equally plausible Am I supporting my child in this, or am I enabling them? Supervising others in the marketplace, many of you do this. Do I overlook that behavior, or does that behavior raise to the level of a conversation? 
in helping others resolve a conflict. What is the next step? Where do I begin? When both sides have legitimate hurts, how do you begin to help resolve that? When hurt by a friend, when you've been hurt by a friend and you find that you're drifting in that friendship and you're wondering, have I really been honest about my disappointments? Is it a lack of forgiveness on my part or, or do I not really just trust this person anymore? Shouldn't I just forgive and move on? What's the right answer? Finding discernment can be one of life's most difficult, perplexing journeys. Finding the balance between love and justice, between compassion and accountability, I have found anyway, can be excruciating. Now, maybe it's just my issue, <laughs> but I suspect it is for some of you as well. These have been some of my crosses over the last few years. But yours indeed may be different. Your forks in the road may look differently. It may be, should I marry this person? Should I continue this relationship? Should I walk down this career path? Or maybe you're in the middle of an ethics crisis at work. You don't know which way to go. What can we do? Here's just one thing I want to say. One to do this morning. One challenge. And I'm going to say something that we've said many times, but I'm going to add some nuance to it. I want to urge you to become a lifelong student of this book. This one story, this book is so utterly remarkable and amazing. There is nothing like it in the world. Nothing. I love it. I love it. And I digest it virtually every day and think about it throughout the day and on many nights before sleeping read it and in some afternoons come back to it this book is remarkable and i want to encourage you to read and to reread it as one story and to think about it all the time it is the source of wisdom for all of life now what i don't mean is this the Bible is not a rule book, primarily. Certainly has rules, but it's not primarily a rule book in this regard in that it will tell you precisely what to do in every situation. It's not like some huge index, like, should I marry Bobby? Okay, just look up, just look up the bees, you know, or should I take the job at this bank? Okay, look up that bank, it's right here. Yes, on this day, it doesn't work that way. You'll be disappointed if you think it's a rule book like that or a reference book of some sort. But see, it has been written, this literature has been written in order to be meditated upon, in order to be reflected on day and night, to read and to reread. And as you do over many years, it begins to shape you. It begins to affect what you become. It forms your character. It shapes your values. It transforms your goals. You see, we become truthful people if we practice it. We become solid. We recognize ourselves as sojourners in this life. 
and as aliens in relation to the world. We become faithful and just. We grow in love. We learn the dynamics of what makes relationships work. We learn to listen, like Solomon, to develop a hearing heart, meaning that we are inclined to do his will and that we're able to enter into the lives of others, abandoning our own, our own inclination to narcissism. You see, these qualities, this shaping of who you are, that's what's going to help you discern what to do, what decision to make when you face forks in the road. When we say with utter helplessness, I don't know what to do. Solomon himself wrote this to his son. Proverbs 11.3, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. You see that? Do you catch that? You see this? How do I get guidance, God? What does integrity look like? Integrity will guide you. Integrity, truth-telling, being one, integrity just means an integer. It means that the parts of yourself are connected and related together. It means you are true to God and true to others. When you have integrity, that will enlighten your path. Conversely, if you are duplicious, meaning, you know, you try to be two different people at once, you're one person here, another person there, or you evade promises, or you're just selfish, well, guess what? You're going to be blinded when you come to those forks in the road. You're not going to have the makeup, the composition to make the right decisions in those moments. You know, in James 1, Solomon wrote, if any of you are, I'm sorry, James wrote, I thought maybe he's reflecting on Solomon. James wrote, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. And then he puts on this beautiful rejoinder. Now, if any lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Isn't that beautiful? Right? I mean, we're going to see Solomon, and again, there's even ones I didn't mention this morning, where you begin to see cracks in his life. But you know what? God still blessed him. This place in his life, God honored him. God blessed him. He blessed that childlike prayer. God gives wisdom. Yeah, you're a living contradiction. Yeah, you've got issues. Yeah, you're struggling with sin. Ask. Ask for wisdom. And allow the word of God. Allow this beautiful, powerful book to shape your life. David, why don't you come on up and, and faith. We've done here this morning in 1 Kings chapter 3 and 4, we've done the ask, we've done the answer, and we've done the aftermath. And now we're going to turn our attention to Jesus. We're going to take communion together. I'll let David introduce that. I just want to finish with this in Isaiah chapter 11. See, Solomon was imperfect, and we'll see that more and more as time goes on. 
And though certainly in the beginning of his reign, there may have been Jews that said, yes, this is the king we've always been waiting for. He's the one. This is the one the story's about. And of course, they would come to disappointment. But all that just points to the perfection and the beauty and the majesty of the greatest king, the one who did not fail. It says in Isaiah 11 that the spirit was on Jesus. It was a spirit of wisdom, a spirit that knew how to judge justly and judge fairly. And for us today, the important word for us today is that he is a counselor. Jesus is your counselor. It's pretty powerful, right? Because that means he's not only giving you counsel from this book, right? That would be good. But the fact that he's your counselor mean he means he knows you. And he knows from this exactly what you need to hear. You ever been with a counselor and man, sometimes the counselor just, they just, somehow they just hit the nail on the head. They know exactly what you need. Well, Jesus can be that kind of counselor for you every day. Taking his love and this word and applying it to the exact points that you need and especially when you hit that fork in the road. He will be your counselor. You can gain wisdom as Solomon did through Jesus. So let's worship him and we're going to celebrate communion together. David. All right. Um, yeah, just like Chris said, communion is our opportunity to remember Christ's death. And, you know, God gives his wisdom by the Spirit. And in order to receive the Holy Spirit, you first must receive Christ. So let's, um, let's take a moment this morning and let's just reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. And after he gave thanks, he broke it. And he said... This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after dinner, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So we're going to sing a couple of songs here, and you can just take communion whenever you like through this time. But Now let's take, eat, remember, and believe. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again.
what a fantastic declaration, right? Sons and daughters adopted with full rights, all because of his glorious, glorious grace. And our goal is that when we leave this place, we would be able in every setting to glorify him and to live a life of wisdom such that we attract others, others to him. The ministry and the work of the Spirit doesn't stop when the service is over. We want to continue in this work in the ministry of the Spirit, ministry to one another. And you might be in that place this morning where you need guidance. You're in that proverbial fork in the road and you don't know which way to turn. You've been burdened and you're, you're anxious because of perplexity in not knowing what to do. You know, God can work a lot of different ways. He can speak a lot of different ways. God may speak prophetically through others to help give you guidance. He can speak, as we said this morning, through his word. He can speak through the advice and the counsel of others. All of those are important aspects of the ways that God speaks to and leads us. But members of our prayer team will be here this morning uh, when we dismiss up, up front here in front of the stage. And if you would like to receive prayer, for some difficult choice. You can share it or not share it. That's up, completely up to you. But come forward and let one of the members of our prayer team pray for you, that God can give you the wisdom, like he gave to Solomon, that you need to make the right, the right decision, okay? Let's go ahead and let's pray. And I'd like to pray for uh, this morning, pray for our Hispanic service. You might have recognized that our Hispanic friends aren't out in the lobby. They are initiating this morning their own service. And they have invited a ton of their friends to be there. And so let's take a moment. It'd be great for us to lift them up and pray for them. And then, then we'll dismiss. Father, in Jesus' name, we love you. We love that you've given us your words. They shape us. They change us. They communicate the most important message in the world, that you love us. You love us. And you want us to be in relationship with you. And we thank you for our Hispanic friends who, who want so much for their friends and their world to, to know that love, to be able to share it in their own language. And so we pray for them this morning and pray that you would, Father, bless. You'd bless that time. You'd use it powerfully. Thank you that many of us can be there from here, and we look forward to supporting them in our prayers and in our efforts this afternoon. We commit it to you. Amen. Amen. Again, now you can raise your hands for the final blessing. May Christ go before you. May Christ be behind you. May Christ be above, and may Christ be below you. May Christ be with you, and may Christ, the hope of glory, be in you. Amen. Go in peace and glorify him.